0: We're talking about Boris Johnson coming back. Please, no. Please, no.
1: She speaks for all of us. But it could happen. Less than two months after leaving office in disgrace, by this time next week, Boris Johnson could be back in charge. Aaron Bastani, it's it's difficult to believe. I feel like I'm almost living through some kind of nightmare. If you would predicted this, six weeks ago, that Boris Johnson would be back in charge by the end of October. I think few people would have believed you, but it's now very, very believable.
2: It's certainly plausible. He's in the top three candidates, isn't he? I mean, we'll talk about that more, but uh, the satire that is British uh, political life uh, seems to go from bad to worse. Who needs fiction, Michael, when we have reality?
1: Yeah, I mean, it has now become a sort of fantasy plotline that the rest of the world is laughing at. We're going to talk about that this evening, but obviously the focus is this Tory leadership race, who is going to be the next Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is back early from his holiday in the Caribbean, and there's some real momentum behind his unofficial candidacy to be the next Prime Minister. Paul Bristow MP was the first out of the blocks. He said this just one hour after Liz Truss's resignation. I went to my constituency at the weekend
3: and I always want to talk to my constituents and feel, see how they feel. And I went to Diwali, I went to the Great Eastern Run, I even did some campaigning. And the strong message that I got was, bring back Boris Johnson. I stood in a by-election six months before Boris Johnson. uh, uh, We won that historic mandate, that election. I came third. We were 19 points behind in the polls before Boris Johnson became prime minister. we face a similar situation now. Now, I don't know what the situation's going to be. I don't know the rules. I don't even know if Boris Johnson wants to stand. but we need an election winner, and we had an election winner. Uh, And so as far as I'm concerned, I listened to my constituents, and their message was, bring back Boris. Do you think many Conservative MPs agree with you? Well, the Conservative members certainly agree with me. We saw the uh, members uh, earlier on. It said that Boris Johnson was the most popular. Look, it's about making sure that we win as many seats as we possibly can. We get back to good government, and uh, we, we we get back on the right track. Boris Johnson has got a mandate from the members. He's got a mandate from the country. If Boris Johnson wants to do this, uh, my constituents clearly want Boris to do this. Uh, I think it would be a fine choice. But as I say, I don't know. I don't know what the situation is. I don't know if he even if he
0: wants it.
1: We do now know that he does want it. Let's stick to endorsements, though. Nadine Dorries was up next.
0: So I think we were 19 points behind, 20 points behind in the polls before Boris Johnson became Prime Minister we we were way up in the polls, won an 80-seat majority. I think we're back to being way down in the polls. We are back to being way down in the polls. Again, I don't know what they are today. So I think a lot of MPs will look at that and they will see that um, it, it wasn't just a phenomena, you know, that a general election win, that Boris Johnson is a winner. And I think that will help a lot of those MPs, many who are new MPs in the 29 intake, Many of them will maybe now realise that having a winner in place is what the party needs to survive and, and for, the, for what's best for the country moving forward. But you, you must know that since rumours have begun swirling that Boris Johnson is going to put his hat in the ring, there are a number of colleagues of yours saying that they will not work under him. They would rather sit as an independent in Parliament. Well, there are a lot of colleagues who are saying they will. So let's just let's you know it's it's Friday night. Let's see how the weekend pans out. I'm quite confident he will get the hundred signatures. But let's just see how it pans out over the weekend.
1: Nadine Doris was actually there speaking on Thursday night. That was yesterday, but she's a good time gal. Maybe every day is Friday for Nadine. For his part, Jacob Rees-Mogg has launched a pro-Boris campaign. I'm backing Boris, and in this hashtag, oh. Boris or bust. So a pretty stark choice there from the perspective of Jacob Rees-Mogg. But the least categorical endorsement, but perhaps the most significant, was from Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. After ruling himself out of the contest, he said this. Well, I think it's really important to consider, for me, which candidate will
4: recognise the very pressing security concerns that face this country at the time, that will take decisions to invest in defence and security. It's really important without... Uh, you know, national security. There is no economic security, and I think that is important. That whoever are the candidates putting their names forward, they indicate that. But also at the same time, I have to recognise the issue of the mandate. This is with. Will be our potentially our third prime minister since the general election of 2019 that means we have to think about that legitimate legitimacy question that the public will be asking themselves and also about who could win the next election that's obviously important for any political party at the time so you know at the moment i would lean towards boris johnson i think he will still have some questions to answer around obviously, that investigation. But I know when I was Secretary of Defence, he invested in defence, he supported me, he supported uh, the actions this country has taken to keep us safe. Uh, So that's at the moment, I'm leaning towards that. But I think, you know, there are a few days to go, and we'll see what's happened. There's some, you know, other candidates who are just as excellent putting their name in the ring. But I think fundamentally, we have to answer those first two points I
1: said earlier. The Telegraph reports Boris Johnson has been personally phoning MPs from his holiday to shore up support for a leadership bid. They quote an MP called by Johnson as saying this, um, this is the MP speaking, I said I thought there needs to be an acknowledgement of what went wrong last time and commitment that those mistakes would not be made again. He accepted, so this is Boris Johnson, he accepted mistakes were made and that a future Downing Street he leads would have to be a different culture. For me, there are a number of factors at play here, not least the looming question of legitimacy of the third prime minister since the general election. Boris Johnson has the mandate. To get on the ballot paper, Boris Johnson needs the support of 100 MPs. According to Guido Fawkes, he already has 63. That's behind Rishi Sunak on 88, but ahead of Penny Mordaunt on 24. But there are suspicions Guido might be inflating Boris Johnson's numbers. Some of the MPs they've included in their tally still remain anonymous. So in terms of public endorsements, betting analyst Patrick Flynn has this as his latest count. Sunak on 84, Boris Johnson on 48, and Penny Morden on 21. So Boris Johnson further from the threshold, but still it's looking pretty possible. Aaron, could Boris Johnson really be about to make a comeback? How plausible
2: is this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's very plausible he gets in the final two, Michael. Look, we we aren't the people who have various Tory uh, MPs on speed dial. We aren't drinking, you know, in the in Strangers Bar or at Westminster with the chairman of the 1922 committee or in the Athenaeum Club or, or the Carlton Club. But it stands to reason that clearly he's in the top three candidates. There are only three people seemingly that are set to go for this. Only one confirmed, like you say, Penny Morden. So it seems highly plausible. For me, Michael, I would ask our audience, I suppose, two questions in terms of how does this actually work? If he becomes the prime minister, yes, the Tories have a majority. I don't know what it is now, obviously, after various by-elections of about 70. How will they pass legislation if even 30 of his MPs aren't on board with Prime Minister Boris Johnson? How do they pass legislation? You know, you get the threats of, oh, we're going to become independents or whatever. What if you don't even need to get that far if there's just a basic inability to impose discipline? We saw that with Liz Truss uh, and the remarkable events in the week with the Tory whips being unable to just oversee basic discipline. How would that change with Boris Johnson? How would it not get worse, actually? And then secondly, Michael, what is Johnsonism when you're having demands from the markets, effectively from the OBR? The Bank of England is saying it's going to raise interest rates. What is Johnsonism in a context where actually you can't throw money at the problem? Which, of course, is what we saw after 2019. There was... Claims of wanting to level up, of to build, you know, big infrastructure projects, et cetera, et cetera, that gradually got scaled back. We saw that with, um, you know, uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail. We saw that with a bunch of other projects too. The pressures to go even further on that, on spending less, to find more cuts, pursue more tax rises, are stronger now than when he left office. So I, I would again say, what does Johnsonism look like? If it's not populist largesse, and giving various electoral constituencies exactly what they want, I'm troubling, I'm troubled rather. i'm I'm struggling and troubled to work out what it actually is. So those are the two big questions for me. What would it even look like? a second Boris Johnson government, and how would he pass legislation? I think those are the two fundamental questions here. But yes, he can get one hundred votes and he can get on the uh, he can make the
1: final two for sure. My sense is probably the what is Johnsonism question is more fundamental than the can he pass legislation because, As far as I'm concerned, you get Tory MPs often noising off, but when push comes to shove, they tend to vote with the leader, especially if they're polling okay. So I assume the sort of plan from Boris Johnson is that he gets in, the Tories polling recovers slightly. It doesn't have to recover much, by the way, or it doesn't have to reach a very high level, let's say, to, to, to look like a recovery because they're on sort of 14 points in some polls. So I imagine what he's imagining is he gets into power, all of these people who noised off and said, oh, we'll cross the floor, if Boris Johnson gets elected, suddenly say, oh, well, I suppose we're not doing as badly as we were when Liz Truss was in power. Let's actually just shut up and maybe even join his cabinet. Um, Let's look in more detail, though, at what other Tory MPs are saying, especially MPs potentially not on Boris Johnson's side. So the kamikaze attitude of the pro Boris campaign is annoying some MPs. So Tim Loughton um, shared that graphic from Jacob Rees-Mogg, which I showed you earlier. And he said, Jacob, how on earth can that slogan be remotely helpful to the party given the strong possibility that the next PM will not be Boris? I would not use the tagline hashtag Boris and bus and you really should think this through properly if you have any interest in party unity. A verdict is also due on Boris Johnson from the Privileges Committee. That's led by Harriet Harman and is investigating COVID rule-breaking and whether Johnson lied to Parliament. A conservative source told ITV this, it is amazing that some Tory MPs want Boris back saying they think he can win them the next election, but will he even make it that far? If the Privileges Committee is as damning for him as it sounds, he is possibly gone by Christmas. The fact he is standing at all whilst under investigation is shameful. It's hardly the stability and unity everyone is calling for. The Privileges Committee could, in fact, decide to suspend Johnson from the Commons. And if suspended for 14 days, which is 10 sitting days, it would then trigger a recall petition. And that's that means that with 10,000 signatures, there would be a by-election. If Boris Johnson was the Prime Minister, that would be a by-election in the Prime Minister's seat. But the Tory MPs really care. Now, almost 60 members of the government resigned in protest in July to oust Boris Johnson for various immoralities. But some have already changed their minds. ITV's Robert Peston tweeted this today. Tory MP Caroline Johnson tells Times Radio she is backing Boris Johnson to return as PM. Just over three months ago, she resigned as vice chair of the Conservative Party because, quote, the cumulative effect of his, quote, errors of judgment and domestic actions had squandered the goodwill of our great party. She said if he stayed as PM, that would, quote, only damage our party and therefore our country. And then Robert Peston says what has happened since then to make her change her mind. Events in the Conservative Party are quite extraordinary. Caroline Johnson is not the only Tory MP who resigned in protest about three months ago to, to force Boris Johnson to resign, who has now changed. Actually, they're going to endorse the guy. Aaron, I mean, you, you've alluded to it there. Lots of people are sort of suggesting, you know, there could be a split if Boris Johnson comes back um, to the position of Prime Minister in the Conservative Party. Lots of MPs sort of anonymously briefing that if he were to get back in power, they would cross the floor. Is it not the case that with these Conservatives, this is all talk? The moment that their careers are on the line, they just say, oh, actually, you know, maybe we will just vote for this guy, even though three months ago we said he was so immoral that he couldn't possibly lead the country. And so we were going to, you know, we we felt strongly about this that we would resign. But push comes to shove, now they're endorsing him. I mean, where would it end?
2: I think that's right. I mean, we've already had something similar to this during the sort of Brexit debacle, you know, that the leader's office at the time, Boris Johnson, the prime minister also removed the whip from 20 Conservative MPs. So he's he's perfectly willing to do what has to be done. I mean, would he have the same kind of operation around him at the top of the party to oversee something like that? No Dominic Cummings, some of the top team he had for the first sort of six months of year have all left. I think that's also a real misgiving that people should have. You know, Boris Johnson was part of a bigger package, including Cummings and others. They're no longer part of his entourage. And what's changed? Well, of course, there was a poll out today, Michael, that had the Tories on 14%. Labour's lead over the Tories, Michael, was 39%. 39% lead. Labor's, aren't on, Labor's not on 39%. They're leading by 39%. To put that into perspective, 39% is more than any party won, any party won in the 2005, 10, and 15 elections. Any party won. That's their lead over the Tories. So I think if you're a Conservative MP, Right now, there's, what, 360, 370 of them. You're looking at some polling data that suggest they're going to end up in their dozens. By the way, a general election is two years off, but that's, that's the best thing you've got to go on right now in terms of directing your actions. You're looking at that, and a pretty good half of those MPs, of those 370 MPs, think, my job might be safe if Boris Johnson comes back, or Rishi Sunak, or whoever. So the choice really matters for a significant number of people. And many of them, particularly in the the newly won seats, I think they're as good as gone. But for them in particular, those seats that the Tories won in 2019, for them in particular, I can see the allure of of pursuing Boris Johnson. And of course, there is the added argument, Michael, which isn't a pathetic argument. I think it's actually an intellectually coherent argument, which is that Boris Johnson is the only legitimate prime minister now because he's actually got a mandate in a general election to have two successive prime ministers not chosen by the public at large would be very, very troubling. And I think the arguments, therefore, against a general election wouldn't exist. I think they don't exist anyway. But at least when you pluck for Boris Johnson, you could say, well, you know, he got this huge mandate, 80-seat mandate, 80-seat majority, rather, in December 2019, you know, piped down. It's a bit different to, say, Penny Mordon, who, again, name recognition across the country is, I'd imagine, quite low. So, yes, they are pathetic, Michael. Like most politicians, they just want to keep their jobs. It was the same logic against Jeremy Corbyn in 2016 with the chicken coup. A lot of the MPs trying to get rid of him, yeah, they tried to dress it up with ideology and and with virtue, but a lot of them just thought they were going to lose their seats. And I think if Boris Johnson can sway a critical mass of Tory MPs that they will keep their seats, they'll back him. You know, to go from 14 to 30%, a 30%, by the way, would still be a, a big Labour majority, 30%, 30%, I think, is more or less what Major got in, um, in 97. Maybe he got slightly more. I think maybe got like 32%. So 30% would still be a historically bad result for the Tories. But a lot of them think, well, if we can get to 30%, my, my job's probably safe. So that's what it's about now. Damage limitation, ethics go out of the window.
1: Let's move on to the other candidates. Rishi Sunak is far and away the favourite among MPs. And he's also favourite among the public. So this is a YouGov poll of the Tory leadership contenders. Um, YouGov say Britons are most likely to say that Rishi Sunak would do a good job as prime minister. So 43% of the public think Rishi Sunak would do a good job compared to 40% who say he'd do a bad job. For Boris Johnson, very different. 34% say he'd do a good job and 56% say he'd do a bad job. Penny Morden, the the main takeaway there is the majority of people don't know because she doesn't have so much recognition. Sunak also wasn't that far off Liz Truss in the last election among Tory members. It was 57 to 43 percent, so not a landslide by any means. But if Rishi Sunak does win, he might be subject to a pretty vicious campaign from the right. This was Dan Wooten last night on GB News. Sunak is a globalist shill who the party have not forgiven for his backstabbing of Boris. The other likely candidates, including the brilliant Kemi Badenoch and excellent and brave Swala Braverman, are largely untested. Although, in my opinion, Braverman's short stint as Home Secretary has proven she is the only other likely candidate with the balls to take on the establishment and the blob. A Sunak ally told the Mail Online today it was, quote, natural logic for the former Chancellor to go head to head with Boris. And they added, it will be a battle for the soul of the party.
4: Indeed, it will. But that battle must be
1: allowed to happen not stitched up by MPs and party grandees in the early hours of the morning in the bars of Westminster. Now, and I want your thoughts on this. GB News, um, I've been watching a bit more of it recently than I have because it's it's now on, kind of on the homepage of my TV. I should sort this out. My apologies to all of our audience, but it does pop up every now and again. And it is interesting to watch. And this whole Rishi Sunak is a globalist shill, really, they can't stop talking about it. And, you know, when you hear sort of sometimes vox pops of Conservative Party members there is a sort of level of vitriol leveled at this guy. And obviously, I'm no fan of Rishi Sunak. I think he you know, is someone who has no interest in the incomes and the well-being of Britain's working class. We saw that sort of getting rid of the 20-pound uplift, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, obviously, extraordinarily wealthy. But the sort of words which are being used about him and the level of hatred, I mean, what is, what is going on there? Have you got a sense of, of why he is the subject of so much hate?
2: Well, it's remarkable in a way, Michael, because this is a guy who was pro-Brexit and he comes from the right of the party when it comes to sort of economic libertarianism. You know, he was not a Cameroon. And yet, like you say, he's this hate figure on a par, on a par with Ken Clark or Jeremy Hunt, even though, you know, his politics are, are actually quite different. Fundamentally, why is he hated? Because he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer and he oversaw furlough, massive state intervention in the economy. And of course, he was part of a government which oversaw lockdowns. People like Dan Woodson, my God, sounds like a maniac, by the way, Michael. Presumably, you're you're going between GB News and Sesame Street for your entertainment these days. He is, yeah, this hate figure for everything that went wrong with the Boris Johnson administration, because, of course, you don't want to go after Big Dog himself. It is a very strange thing. And, and quickly, Michael, if the Conservatives do lose the next general election badly, I think it can be underestimated how big a variable Talk TV and GB News will be in terms of how vicious and nasty, and chaotic, the aftermath of that will be, and the extent to which they'll radicalise what remains of the Conservative Party. I think it's going to be a really important moment, two years away, but something to think about. And that wasn't the case five years ago, these channels didn't even exist.
1: This is almost a little bit of a side point, but I do think it, it sort of feeds into your point, which is, you know, lots of people talk about GB News failing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. On many levels, it, it has. But I do think there is a power in sort of passive viewers. So I, you know, even though I, you know, I feel like we're growing fast on YouTube, it would be a bit of a strange investment to go get a, a mainstream TV channel. But the fact that you sort of have people watching something in the background does give you a lot of power. And I have had GB News in the background more over the past couple of weeks than, you know, ever before. And it is quite scary what it's like at the moment. I've seen sort of American commentary about Fox News, where they sort of say, every time you turn on Fox News now, it's just brown people committing crime immigrants or African-Americans committing crime. And GB News has gone down a very similar angle. You turn it on and it's just constantly, constantly, this migrant has committed this heinous crime. This asylum seeker has committed this heinous crime. And it is really, really just pumping into your head that immigrants are not just a threat to society, but a threat to your children, essentially. That's what you're being told 24-7. And it is very, very scary. And I think it probably is radicalizing the Conservative Party base. And you know, Rishi Sunak in this election is going to have to contend with that let's move to the one other candidate. And this is the only person who has formally announced their candidacy is Penny Mordant. So she announced um, her campaign with this tweet. I've been encouraged by support from colleagues who want a fresh start, a united party and leadership in the national interest. I'm running to be leader of the Conservative Party and your prime minister to unite our country, deliver our pledges and win the next general election. Now, she's obviously probably living in cloud cuckoo land if she thinks that winning this contest would make her win the next general election. But there we are. What is there to say about Penny Morden? We don't know that much about what she believes. Often what is said about her is she is a decent performer in the House of Commons. I think we saw that this week when she stood in for Liz Truss. I think in many ways she was sticking the knife into Liz Truss when she was repeating all of these charges which were being leveled at Liz Truss when she said, Liz Truss is not um, hiding under a desk, probably it wasn't an accident that that was then used on all of the news shows as sort of a, an object of ridicule for Liz Truss. She does seem to be okay in Parliament in the Commons, but I do think people forget just how shoddy her campaign was. So very recently, she stood to be Tory leader, and she had very little to say. This was actually my highlight um, from her short-lived campaign. It was in a debate, and this is now this was shared. She was so proud of it, shared by her campaign, saying this: "The top 180 innovations that we have had, how many are used in the NHS? None." Now, this this makes no sense whatsoever. And during her leadership campaign, she said a lot of things that made no sense whatsoever. There was sort of an analogy a little bit with sort of the Jess Phillips campaign in the Labour Party leadership election. Lots of people sort of projecting something onto this person. Oh, she is the person we need because she can finish sentences. And then when it comes to taking policy positions or having something actually insightful to say about the state of the country, very little there. Aaron Penny Mordant. I suppose her hope is that she can come through the middle. Lots of people hate Rishi Sunak. Lots of people hate Boris Johnson. Not that many people have a strong opinion about Penny Morden. I assume she's thinking that, you know, if she can get to the last three, she might win. Do you think she has any chance of being the next prime minister?
2: I think it's unlikely, Michael. And, And quickly, your point about Rishi Sunak outpolling her and Boris Johnson amongst the public at large. What matters most to the Conservative Party right now, going back to what I said earlier about damage limitation, is who performs best amongst their 2019 vote. It's about clinging on to as many of those as possible if you want to go from 14 to 30%. That's the lowest hanging fruit, comparatively speaking. Of course, many of them aren't going to go back to the Conservative Party. And that's the polling that matters. And on that measure, Boris Johnson beats Rishi Sunak and beats Penny Morden. And like you say, you've got two years to a general election, you're on 14%. Going for somebody with such limited, wider name recognition, with no policy chops who's already run a really limited weak leadership campaign, it would be puzzling. It would be very strange. It would be like Theresa May, Liz Truss, all over again. So I would be surprised. I think I can see the argument. I personally, if I was a Tory head go for Rishi Sunak, I said this in the last show. I can see the arguments for Rishi Sunak and to a lesser extent Boris Johnson, if it's about damage limitation, but you had a really risk-loving choice with Liz Truss. It catastrophically failed. Why would you do that again with Penny Morden?
1: Let's have a look at some polling um, before we move on. So the latest YouGov polling is putting the candidates up against Keir Starmer in a head-to-head. Um, they all lose quite dramatically, um, but Rishi Sunak, there is the smallest gap between him and Keir Starmer. So Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer, you have Starmer on 43, Sunak on 34. For Boris Johnson, slightly higher than Sunak. Obviously, he has more supporters than Sunak, but he's scarce, Um more people as well. So, in that case, Starmer would be on 48 and Boris Johnson would be on 35. Penny Morden, not looking particularly impressive, probably because her name recognition is low. Starmer on 43 and Penny Morden on 28. This is what you can expect in the coming days. So, obviously, at the moment, candidates are collecting their nominations. Those nominations will close at 2 p.m. on. Monday. Then, between three thirty and five thirty, MPs will vote if two or more candidates receive over a hundred nominations. And then that evening, they will make sure that only two candidates remain. There will then be an indicative vote, so um, even though it won't be binding, MPs can show the members who they prefer. This is a Sky News graphic. They're suggesting then there will be televised hustings between the final two candidates. Although I imagine there will be some jostling um, about precisely the extent of that. We saw last time that some people didn't want to debate, and then. On Friday, the 28th of October, close. Oh, sorry, voting by Conservative members will close. So we will know by Friday who is the new Prime Minister. Obviously, if there is only one candidate, we will know sooner than that. Let's move on. The British public want a general election and they want it now. The latest polling from YouGov shows that 63% of respondents want the new Prime Minister to call an early general election, and less than a quarter think he or she shouldn't. Of course, it's the very last thing Tory MPs want, given their reputation is deep in the bin. But given we're about to get our second prime minister in less than two months, who hasn't been chosen via a general election, there's a pretty strong case for it. And even Tory voters seem able to see that the time has come for the nation to have a say. This week's BBC Question Time was in Cheltenham, and the topic of a general election came up. This woman explained why she thought it was time to call one.
0: The scenes in the House of Commons last night, the chaos in the lobbies. Charles Walker, the MP, spoke so eloquently about the state of the Conservative Party. I'm a lifelong Conservative, and I couldn't agree with him more. The fact Graham, I think, didn't know whether or not it was even a vote of no confidence, I think that's correct to say. The Conservative Party's gone from Rachel's brother who I think frankly was a moral vacuum and I honestly thought they couldn't come up with anyone worse. They found someone who trashed the economy, who's ruined the Conservative Party for a generation and I hear what Tony says but I can't see the alternative when the country and the Conservative Party are in the absolute state that they are.
1: That reference there was to Graham Stewart, the Tory MP who mistakenly told the Commons that the fracking vote was not a confidence vote. Chaos that followed led to Truss's resignation the next day. Now, Cheltenham is a Tory constituency where they hold a very slim margin over the Lib Dems, but the audience was selected to mirror how England voted in the last election. Fiona Bruce put the question of a general election to them.
0: More of you here (laughs) voted Conservative than for any other single party, because we're reflecting Parliament at the moment. Let me just get a show of hands. It's not scientific, but it's just to get an idea. Who here would like a general election?
1: Huge. Gosh, that's almost all of you. It was almost unanimous. I saw about five people who didn't put up their hand. The Mirror and The Independent have both launched petitions calling for a general election. So far, The Independence has over 300,000 signatures. Um, the Mirror's Which was launched with the campaign group of 38 Degrees has 80,000. There's also one, I think, on the official website, which has 700,000, but that actually um, has been running since the last crisis we had in government and the last time the Tories replaced the Prime Minister. So it's difficult to know when exactly people signed. Now, if there were a general election, Labour would walk it. This graphic shows the new statesman's modelling of how many seats each party would be likely to win based on the latest polling. Labour would be set to win a huge majority with 509 seats compared to the Tories' 41. But although a Labour victory would be almost guaranteed if a general election were held soon, Keir Starmer still isn't giving us that much to get excited about. On Good Morning Britain, he was asked for his views on a possible nurses' strike.
0: The RCN is balloting its members, nurses, about uh, strike action. They want a pay increase 5% above inflation. Do you back that?
5: Well, uh, I completely understand why they're making that um, ask. Wages have been very low for a long time. They're working really hard and prices are going through the roof. Um, I don't want to see a strike. They don't want to go on strike. Um, what I want to see is that resolved. But I do understand that many working people, whether it's nurses or others, are really, really up against it now. Um, and of course, uh, they want negotiations to increase their wages. Um, in the end, well, of course, you but they- came
0: into power and you were in charge of their wages, would you grant it?
5: Well, there's a mechanism to decide what that would be, and we would let that run its course. But I empathise, I understand um, why um, nurses uh, are in the situation that they're in, why they're considering industrial action, um, but I don't but want to strike all to go We understand it, but would you back it, ahead.
0: and would you grant it?
5: Well, there's a mechanism for dealing with their pay and I would want that to run its course. Of course I would. But, you know, the government has put us in this position and we need to get out of this position. The only way in the end to get out of this position is to deal with the cost of living crisis because with inflation through the roof, prices through the roof, the economy tanking because of this government, we need the stability that settles this situation. Because otherwise, you know, pay resolution in, you know, a few months time is meaningless if inflation's taken prices through the roof in six months or 12 months. We need a longer term answer to this.
1: Now, I totally understand. Look, Keir Starmer, he he wants to be prime minister. There could be an election soon. You know, he doesn't want to be pictured standing on picket lines. I get that. What I found really unforgivable there, though, in that conversation, was the argument that nurses shouldn't have a real pay cut is quite easy to make. And even if he wanted to remain non-committal, I don't think he should have remained non-committal. I think you should should commit to a real-time pay rise for nurses. But there are so many things he could have brought up to, I suppose, educate the public, which no political risk at all, which he didn't. For example, There is currently a crisis in the NHS, a staffing crisis in the NHS. One of the big reasons we have a staffing crisis in the NHS is because real terms pay for nurses has been cut since 2010. It's still lower than 2010. So the TUC say the average nurse is £5,200 worse off than they were in 2010. Now, if you can't connect low pay for NHS workers with a staffing crisis in the NHS, what are you doing? Now, and I want your, your take on this sort of general election now question. I personally, you know, want a general election now. I don't think we're going to get one, but I think it's a reasonable demand. You know, I'm not particularly excited about Keir Starmer, but I would be really excited about having a government that not the Conservatives after 12 years. It'd be much easier to pressure the Labour Party, I think, than it would be to pressure the Conservative Party. How are you feeling about the potential for a Labour government? They're 37 to 39 points ahead. Should people be getting excited or should we be telling people... You know, who cares? They're all the same.
2: Well, I think excitement would probably be a, a dangerous course to pursue, Michael. I think even if you don't intend to vote Labour, I think if you just want a functioning government which oversees legislation, I think you probably do want a general election. Even if you're a Conservative or a Liberal Democrat, and that's is like a strange thing to say, but the, the Tories have put themselves into such a hole here with you know two successive prime ministers now who aren't the result of a general election. I really think just from a basic level of elementary competence of administering the state, we have to do that. In terms of the ancillary point about Labour, should people be excited? I, I personally don't think Keir Starmer will deliver very much. I think there'll be some very small things, you know, that pay offers to NHS staff might be 1% more than what the Tories were offering. It'll still be below inflation. And on the one hand, the reality is that, yes, the facts have changed. You've got 10% inflation you have no growth. We're looking at four or five consecutive quarters of economic contraction. Interest rate hikes are still going to come in. That's going to massively hit final demand. Recession could become a depression. So I understand the picture isn't looking good. Of course, by the way, a lot of that could change by 2024, if that's when we do have a general election. But right now, if we had one and Labour came in, I understand why Labour would want to be under-promising and hopefully over-delivering. My view is somebody like... I could be wrong, right? I I could be wrong. We we don't really know Starmer's long game here. My view is that we'll get just one or two positive things and actually the priority of Labour, agree or disagree, will be administering the state, listening to the OBR, uh, listening to the Bank of England. That's it. We are more competent than the Tories, which look, like you say, big upgrade on the Conservative Party, but it doesn't help the housing crisis. It doesn't help uh, inequality. It doesn't help... H S waiting times, the fact that ambulances aren't getting to where they need to be, much under an hour right now. And I think this is something for the Labour right to think about here and, and consider, even if you want to do basic problem-solving right now, like creating a national care service, getting on top of a waiting times, getting on top of ambulance arrival times, building the kind of infrastructure we need to be a 21st century economy, just to do that basic stuff, you're actually looking now tax rises that have only been touted in public by John McDonnell. Those are the facts. If you want to be, you know, administering the state, and, you know, we're not going to run a deficit, and we want to, you know, show credibility to the markets, and you want to do the basic things of running the NHS, education, public transport, the basic, basic stuff. Forget nationalisation. Forget anything that Starmer's pledged. The basic stuff. Then they're going to have to oversee quite extensive tax rises. Those are the facts. Doing politics in low-growth, high-inflation societies is extraordinarily difficult, very, very difficult. And my personal view is the kinds of people that we have in British politics and the media don't have the aptitude or the inclination for it, and they certainly don't have the muscle memory. You know, we haven't had these conditions really for, for 40, 50 years, 50 years. So I have very low expectations of Keir Starmer. That said, of course, infinitely preferable to a Conservative government. And on one or two policy areas... He may surprise us. And it's why I keep on saying to our, our audience, Michael, what one, two, three policies would you want to focus on? Because you can build a mass movement, say, around public ownership of rail and £15 minimum wage and addressing the housing crisis. You can do that and you can influence the Labour government, even that doesn't really want to, to do these things. You can't build a mass movement around everything. So I think that would be the question I would ask of our audience watching this or listening to this. What would you demand the Labour government, the massive majority, which was really underwhelming, and not delivering all the things you'd like to see? What are your one or two priorities and how would you push them?
1: Really interesting question. Fay SF with €12. Euros. Is there any historical parallels with the current Tory crisis in the UK or in another country? This all feels so bizarre and wondering if something like this has happened before. Um, Aaron, I'm aware your knowledge of history is better than mine. I'm going I'm to challenge you and, and throw that to you.
2: In terms of a, in terms of a sort of bizarre political crisis, we have had lots, and it sort of it does frustrate me when people go Brexit. This is unprecedented, Boris Johnson. This is unprecedented. I think the 1910 crisis around the Parliament Act was pretty impressive, which is basically liberals get voted in 1906 in early 1910, and obviously they're liberals. They have a liberal agenda. Former Whigs. They're not conservatives. They want to change some things. They actually, you know, this is before Labour Labour actually get a significant number of MPs in in 1910, but the Liberal Party still is the party really of of organised Labour to a significant extent, particularly in 1906. So they're getting lots of quote-unquote progressive votes. They can't get any legislation through because, of course, the Lords are all Conservatives. It's all hereditary Lords. And so the Lib Dems, or the Lib Dems rather, the Liberals, heaven forbid, the Liberals under Herbert Asquith can't get any legislation through. What they do is... The king dies, they go to the new king, they say, you need to create 500 new peers so that we can get this legislation through. So how do you nullify the House of Lords? You have to create hundreds of new liberal peers. That's how we stopped the lords having a veto on the House of Commons. A major step in the development of British democracy was a Mexican standoff between Herbert Asquith, the king, and a bunch of conservatives. And you still have people, Michael, to this day in the media... In education and politics, and they say the British, the genius of the Westminster system. What a crazy way to carry on! That's that's the political system we've inherited. This supposedly uh, clever, unwritten constitution, uh, so adaptable, so so wise, it gives rise to these kinds of crises relatively frequently, actually. And I, I feel like we're we're coming to a similar juncture now, where the, the system, the Westminster system, really can't address most of the problems that ordinary people are feeling. It was a similar situation in 1910.
1: Let's move on. The end to Liz Truss's disastrous and epically short-lived premiership has led to some of her original backers rewriting history. This was the Daily Mail's front page following Truss's resignation. A verdict from Sarah Vine is plastered across the front page. She says, quote, Truss was a disastrous dalliance who served only to remind us what a real leader looks like. What the Daily Mail don't tell you on that front page is that they were the number one promoters of this disastrous dalliance. I'll ask you now to cast your minds back to the last Tory leadership election earlier this summer. MPs were deciding which two candidates would face the party members. It was clear to everyone the final two candidates would be Rishi Sunak and Eva Mordant or Liz Truss. And during that period, the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday stepped up to offer 10 front pages to make sure Liz Truss got in that final two. Of course, instead of Penny Mordaunt, they included July the 10th, Truss, I'll spike Sunak's tax hike. July the 12th, Truss, back me or it'll be Rishi. July the 14th, unite now or we lose. Truss tells Tory Wright. The next day, July the 15th, Mordant under the microscope. And you've got July the 16th, Liz tax boost for families. July the 19th, Mordant's number 10 bid hits buffers. So that was the male doing everything in their power to get Liz Truss elected as Prime Minister. And this was how they responded to her becoming Prime Minister. Cometh the hour, cometh the woman. And then the response to the mini budget at last, a true Tory budget. So you have a, a newspaper which probably did more than anyone to get this woman in office. Of course, the Daily Mail leadership might be lower than it once was, but it's still pretty influential along the Tory benches. So, in that crucial few days, when, if you remember, Liz Truss overtook Penny Morden to get into that final two, I think the Daily Mail's front pages, day after day after day after day, could have been pretty consequential. Now they have the cheek when she resigns to say, oh God, yeah, this was always a disaster, wasn't it? You backed it more than anyone. Moving on from the media, Mark Littlewood is the director of the right-wing think tank Institute of Economic Affairs. After the mini-budget, he tweeted this. Um, so you can see he's quote-tweeting a tweet from Tim Montgomery, we've shown you before. And Tim Montgomery tweeted, a massive moment for the Institute of Economic Affairs. They've been advocating these policies for years. They incubated Truss and Teng during their early years as MPs. Britain is now their laboratory Tim Montgomery isn't of the IEA, but Mark Littlewood is the director, and he quote tweets this with these, the sunglasses emoji. So he's clearly endorsing what Tim Montgomery says and is proud of what Tim Montgomery says. Now, this is Mark Littlewood speaking two weeks later to Politico. So he says, I'm pretty distraught about it. It did actually appear as if we had a new government that in very broad terms, shared the IEA analysis, the problems with our economy, and it not being market-oriented enough. The position we're in now is that these reforms basically have not been tried." Her attempts to implement change were too hurried, too rushed, not thought through, naive in some regards. You've got Mark Littlewood there. Obviously, what caused the collapse of Liz Trust was that mini-budget. When that mini-budget was released, he's like, brilliant, yeah, this is the IEA's laboratory, we love this. It all collapses like, oh, actually, no, that wasn't really what we believed. And it was executed really badly. Well, the execution was the mini-budget, the mini-budget you endorsed. Aaron, lots of people with egg on their faces, the Daily Mail, other segments of the right-wing press, I mean, the Telegraph-backed trust. And then you've got all these think tanks who are saying, oh, no, this wasn't actually libertarianism. Our crazy ideology still hasn't been properly tried. How damaging will this be for them?
2: They've nuked their credibility for quite a long time, Michael. And I'm sure it won't stop the BBC and Sky, you know, inviting them on to bloody everything. But... It's a major, major problem for them. What's interesting, Michael, is if you actually look at Thatcher, when she comes in in 79-80, the first couple of budgets are actually quite strategic. So she reduces the, you know, the top rate of tax, but she increases VAT in 79. Well, her chancellor increases VAT in, in 79, um, Jeffrey Howe, I think. And then you get, believe this or not, Michael, windfall taxes, I think, in 1980 on the banks and on North Sea Oil. So she's increasing VAT, very regressive, but it's a tax rise, And she's increasing, you know, and she's introduced a a windfall tax. And I think what the IEA, Farage, all the right-wing papers, they all look at like the late 80s. So they all look at the, you know, the Lawson budgets. I hope I'm getting that right. Particularly 1988, where you have what is, you know, equivalent to in today's terms like a £35 billion tax cut, 86, 87, you know, huge tax cuts, right? Not as big as was being proposed, the mini-budget, bizarrely, but they were still big. And over several years, you're looking at, you know, astronomical cuts. How did that happen? Two things. North Sea oil and you have massive growth. In 1988, Britain was seeing something like 5.7% economic growth, partly because of oil, partly because you were privatizing everything. But, you know, that's just, that's just how things were working at that time. So you had high growth. And I think the IEA and the, you know, the IFS and all these various people, not the IFS, I always get confused. There's, there's, a, there's a, there's a few different, the one that Robert Colville, the aristocrat, the posh guy. That's um, the CP, runs. the
1: Center for Policy Studies.
2: Maybe The CPS, yeah, that's right. So it's not the IFS, the CPS. The CPS was, of course, set up, I think, in the late 70s with with Keith Joseph. So these are all very, these are think tanks, which actually the IA even existed before Thatcher. Their project was to create somebody like Thatcher. That's how long they've been around. So they all looked at Thatcher in the late 80s and were like, let's do that all over again. Let's have the tax cuts that you see in the late 1980s. Only problem is, guys, there isn't the economic growth, Okay. There's not the tax receipts coming from the growth that can that can pay for tax cuts. So they looked at the wrong Thatcher. They should have been looking at Thatcher in 79, 80, 81, be a bit more strategic. But the, the Thatcher cosplay people got it upside down, Michael. They looked at the 1980s. And I think the reason why they did that is because they're not involved in real politics. They have nothing on the line here, Michael. If If they're wrong, what happens to them, right? They still get funded by their, you know undisclosed financial backers who nobody ever names. They still go on LBC. They still go on the BBC. They still go to the Spectator Summer Garden Party. What's the downside for them? Even after this, even after... This is, Michael, by the way, the mini-budget, was the single biggest avoidable political misstep in domestic British political history ever. Even after that, these people are still going to be able to enjoy their g with Andrew Neil at the Spectator party next uh, june so that's why they keep on doing this Is because they keep on getting away with it i think this time yeah they're gonna be uh, they're gonna be mocked and derided for a good few years yet but this this is the thing michael they will be there in 10 years time they will be there in 15 years time the iea i believe goes back to the 60s these are very old organizations and the new right always plays the long game so yes they're a joke today there'll be a joke in six months Hopefully, there will be a joke in six years, but these people don't seem, to, they don't seem to go anywhere. They're kind of like cockroaches in a nuclear war. That's how I see Mark Littlewood right now. He will survive, the IA will survive, and their toxic politics will carry on. That's why the left needs to formulate a, a popular alternative, because it won't magically happen by itself.
1: Straight on. UK politics right now is an unmitigated disaster, and the rest of the world hasn't failed to notice. Let's start with this German report on the scenes that followed Wednesday's fracking debate. The correspondent relays the words reportedly said on Wednesday evening by the deputy chief whip.
0: Woraufhin dann der stellvertretende Fraktionschef das Parlament mit den Worten verließ, I'm fucking furious and I don't fucking care
1: anymore. International newspaper coverage has also been brutal. Spain's El País led with The United Kingdom plunges into chaos. And the article goes on to say, quote, It is the Conservative Party alone that is responsible for the profound political, economic and international reputational crisis the UK is experiencing right now. This is France's Le Figaro newspaper. That headline reads, United Kingdom, the crisis without end. And their editorial says this, In the great British tradition of understatement, the word embarrassment constantly came up Thursday in the mouths of commentators across the channel. After three grueling years of Boris Johnson's frenzy, Liz Truss's 44 days in power resulted in a whirlwind of inconsistencies and reversals that surpassed anything the UK had ever known. Germany's Der Spiegel went with this, The Bananas Island. That's the headline. And it goes on to say how the British are making themselves the laughing stock of Europe, but perhaps to my mind, this was the most brutal reaction to Truss's resignation of all.
2: Let's do, right do the right thing, Mr. President. Who do the right thing? Mr. We Truss. Right well, that's for her to decide. But look, she was a good partner on Russia and Ukraine, and uh, and the British are going to solve their problem And the but she was a good partner. Are you concerned Just- about the spillover effects to the U.S. economy, given the political and economic? No, problems? I don't think they're that consequential. <laughs> no,
1: I don't think they're that consequential, Aaron. Do you think that that last answer by Joe Biden is actually kind of a good summary about how of how the rest of the world is is viewing all of this? We're just not that consequential.
2: Totally, Michael. You, you missed a bit with that clip actually, but It was being sort of shared on Twitter. You can see Biden like sprinting over. He runs over to know? say it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like Biden, literally, he's he's almost fooling over himself to tell cameras how inconsequential Britain is. I, I find it also quite interesting because you got this with um, with the monarchy stuff as well, right? There was this weird period of several several weeks where the entire sort of British pundit class was livid that the New York Times would have the temerity to criticise Britain as if we were just another country. Reality is, Michael, I think by price purchasing parity, that's one way to measure the size of our economy. Britain is the ninth, 10th largest economy in the world. Look, we're a very affluent country, comparatively speaking, 65 million people, great history, decent sized military. But we import food, we import energy, we have net importer of food and energy. We don't really create big, powerful companies. Um, We have flatlining life expectancy, relatively low innovation, um, stagnant wages. Things aren't really working out very well for us. So yeah, the, the rest of the world moves on. Ob- Ob- important to say, Michael, of course, there's, there's big political and economic crises right across Europe in particular. America's a different story. But yeah, this is, not, this is not like the 1920s or the 30s. You know, Britain has left the gold standard. Oh my God, global story. We are, we are a relatively small part of, of, of what goes on when it comes to the global economy. The countries of ASEAN, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, and probably like the Philippines, put them together by price purchasing parity their their GDP's is as big as ours bigger much bigger actually. So, I think people sort of need to leave this mental landscape of Britain. Britain is best. Nice place to live. I'm very happy I live here, you know. We we can say things without fear of being arrested most of the time here on Tower. Um but yeah. In terms of a US president being worried about spillover effects from the UK economy, he's right to dismiss it.
1: Uh, Let's go to our final story. This is a story which has been really doing the rounds on on social media. Following Liz Truss's resignation after just 44 days in office, there's been a lot of noise about her being entitled to £115,000 per year for life. This was a headline in the Evening Standard. Did Liz Truss serve long enough as PM to receive the 115k a year payout for the rest of her life? And um, here's one from the Telegraph. Liz Truss facing calls to decline the 115,000 pounds a year allowance as a former PM. Keir Starr was also asked what he thought about Truss getting the allowance.
0: The Lib Dem leader, Ed Davey, has said that Liz Truss should turn down the £115,000 that she's entitled to as a serving prime minister. Would you join that call or do you think she deserves it after 44 days in office?
5: No, she should turn it down. Um, I think that's the right thing to do. She's done 44 days in office. She's not really entitled to
1: it. She should uh, turn it down and not take it. The reporting on this story can sometimes be a little misleading. Ex-prime ministers don't just get the 115k dumped into their accounts each year. What they can do is claim a refund of up to 115,000 pounds per year for quote office and secretarial expenses. But that's only if those expenses arrive from or arise, sorry, from fulfilling public duties and they have to provide the receipts. Now, it's, of course, pretty hard to imagine that Truss is going to have many of those kinds of public life expenses. After all, who's going to be inviting her to make inspirational speeches to school kids or give her views on the economy to university graduates? But Tories tend to be quite good at creative accounting, so I wouldn't put it past her. Another leaving gift for former prime ministers is the right to grant resignation honours. That usually means sticking their mates and backers in the House of Lords, which gives these unelected hangers-on political power and an attendance allowance for life. And Downing Street has confirmed that despite being in office for only 44 days, Liz Truss will get her chance to reward her cronies. This is pretty controversial, though, not only because she didn't serve very long, but because many of those moving to the Lords are likely to be the very people who encouraged her to crash the economy. Liberal Democrat Chief Whip Wendy Chamberlain wrote this to the Cabinet Office. Handing out more expensive gongs to Conservative allies would be a truly remarkable way to reward the shortest tenure as Prime Minister in British political history. Truss and her Conservative colleagues have trashed our economy and left millions in misery. We are faced with the horrifying prospect that those who are selected for honours will be the very people who helped plunge the country into chaos and crisis. Allowing Trust to dish out positions of influence and huge handouts to boot would be a disgraceful waste of taxpayer money and show a stunning lack of humility. Aaron, as I said, this story has been causing a lot of anger. £115,000 in allowances. She has done the job for a very short period of time, and she's done it very, very badly. Should we be fuming about this?
2: Well, yes, but not just with Liz Trust. You know, it's important to say that Tony Blair took hundred grand out last year. Well, in 2020-21, this is a man who's worth £50 million. Pounds. So I don't quite understand why we're paying him a hundred grand to run various personal campaigns either. But there you go. I think this is this was introduced actually in 1991. It was introduced under John Major, 91, 92, something like that. And I, I feel like it's, I think it's like, it's rather strange, right? Former prime ministers tend to do pretty well between speaking gigs and consultancy and God knows what else. I feel it rather strange that the taxpayer is giving them a hundred grand a year, or up to a hundred grand a year. Brown and Blair took a hundred grand last year, as did Cameron. Um, I, I find it strange that we're paying this to all these prime ministers after they've left office and they're extraordinarily wealthy. I find that very odd. It's quite a lot of cash, right? It's, especially if you've got four or five ex prime ministers, they're still alive. Actually, it's, it's more in our case. We've gone through four prime ministers since 2016. So, well, by the end of this week or the end of next week. So the whole system seems rather strange to me. So, yeah, of course Liz Truss shouldn't get this, but I don't think, nor should Tony Blair, the man's worth 50 50 million pounds. We shouldn't be giving him 100 grand a year to run various campaigns.
1: I think I would differ ever so slightly. What I would say about this, I I mean, I agree with your point, given that we have these prime ministers who are making millions and millions of, of pounds, both in property and sort of advising international dictators. Those two things are completely inconsistent. I think what would make sense is you say, look, there is a danger that we have a revolving door between politics and business or politics and lobbying. So therefore, what we want to do is reduce the incentive to do that and say we will provide you know, a public allowance for you to you know, lead a reasonably you know, comfortable life and you know, take part in the public activities that it might be appropriate for, a, for an ex-prime minister to take part in. But that should be on the condition that you don't go around the world making millions of pounds lobbying for and providing consultancy to dictators. So I would imagine, I mean, I haven't done the research into this, but I imagine potentially Gordon Brown actually fits Mm. the mold. As far as I understand, he hasn't sort of sold himself out for for millions of pounds with a property empire, but he does sort of intervene in in public debate and sort of do talks to various people that it's probably reasonable to suggest it's in the public interest for him to do and to say, look, we'll provide you this allowance so you don't have to sell yourself to the highest bidder. Potentially makes sense. I 100% agree with you, though. If you are doing these... If you've got a fifty million pound property empire, you shouldn't be getting this. But I'd actually go further and say no ex prime minister should be allowed to get that. I think you should have some sort of law which says if you have worked in public office, then you don't now get to use the skills and contacts you you gained in public office to go and sell all of that to the highest bidder.
2: There's also David Cameron to think about here, Michael. You know, with the green sale stuff. And I I get what you're saying in theory, but the the reality is that the counter incentives from the private sector are just astronomical. A hundred grand a year to pay for an office and a the secretary and maybe a policy advisor is is, a press person. You know, it's not really, I don't really see it doing much. Bear in mind, Michael, the prime minister, I think, now is paid a wage of 150, 160 grand a year. I find it strange that all of their predecessors who are alive are being given two thirds of that every year to just do whatever they think is appropriate. I find that a strange use of taxpayer money, personally. That said, I, I can see your point. If we're looking at all the fat that needs to be cut, When it comes to Westminster, I think we could start with the House of Lords first, for sure.
1: Apparently, Liz Truss also got a £19,000 exit payout um, from leaving number 10. I'm not quite sure what the justification is for that one. Aaron, it's been a pleasure being joined by you on this Friday evening.
2: Great show, Michael. Hosted so expertly, as ever. We got through a lot. These are very strange times. I wouldn't rather spend it with anybody else but our fantastic audience here at Navarro Media.
1: I 100% Agree. Do make sure you come back on Monday at 7 pm. We're going to have just as much to talk about then as we did today. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramediacom support.